This is John Yablonski. Hey, this is Donald Copeland. Hey, Jerry Walker, class of 93. This is Shane Holloway. This is Laval Sanders. This is Food. And you're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead, guarded by Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate, from San Diego, California, he is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Tommy. I hit the NyQuil hard last night, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in a perfect mindset here for this interview. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But but I'm excited. I mean, we have Marcus Toniel joining the podcast today. And I know we always say we're excited to have a certain guest come on. But Marcus is very intriguing. I've always wanted to have Marcus come on the podcast because he bridges the gap between some interesting times at Seton Hall. I mean, we're going to talk about the heralded recruiting class of him Andre Barrett and Eddie Griffin. We're going to talk about Tommy Amaker leaving the program. And we're going to talk about the redemption story of that team making it to the NCAA tournament under Lewis Orr. I mean, there are so many storylines that we're going to get to dive into today. How can you not be excited? Well, you know, Mike, I, I'll tell you, all the guys we've interviewed during our summer session here have been so giving with their time and their stories that, you know, it, it's kind of been overwhelming at times. And I think today is going to be no exception. I think I think Marcus bridges a really interesting time in the program across two coaches, and it, it kind of brought us into a high level of visibility with the uh, recruiting class that he was in. And we're right in that midst of that recruiting period right now. So I think it's actually a great time to talk about him. No, I mean, Mar Marcus was not the high, most highly recruited player out of that class, but the spotlight was on him relative to bringing that class together. And I think him being the center of the the spotlight kind of carried throughout his career. Here's somebody who was a two-time captain, a vocal leader, somebody that everybody looked up to throughout the program time that he was there and still look, looks up to him, you know, in his time since he's left. I mean, he is just one of those guys, but you look back and say, I really enjoyed watching Marcus be a part of this program. So I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to what he has to say. He was a New Jersey tournament and champion winner in 1999 and a high school All-American in 2000 for Seton Hall Prep. Ranked 26 by RSCI during his senior year, he was part of the greatest recruiting class Seton Hall has ever seen. He played for Seton Hall from 2000 to 2003 and was Big East Academic All-Star in 2002. And in 2018, he was inducted into the Seton Hall prep hall of fame welcome to left coast pirates live marcus toniel marcus welcome to the show 
Uh, thanks for having me. Great to have you join us, Marcus. So, contrary to many other players who grew up in New Jersey, you have stayed true to your home state throughout much of your basketball career. You played your, your high school and college ball locally, as well as coaching at the collegiate uh, level and high school and AAU ball. What was your attraction yeah, I mean, to New Jersey basketball? What, why did you stay close to home? Uh, well, Jer- Jersey's home, first and foremost. And I- I'd rather give my state an opportunity to have success. You know, it's, you get all this homegrown talent in Jersey and guys go off to other other schools in different states and the old states become famous so they add to their legend and i, I just want to be a guy that, that helps teach new jersey uh, in the forefront as best i can and that was obvious from the beginning i mean you had your started your stored career at the prep um you played under coach bob farrell there and you've been quoted saying that he accomplished so much with minimal talent that, and that's often overlooked what do you mean by that well, Coach Fry has never had the best talented guys in the state. I think my four-year run might have been the most talent he's had on, on one team for a four-year stretch. Outside of that, he's had two guys or three guys, and sometimes he did it with no-name guys that, that people were readily uh, recognized. And somehow he's been able to compile as many wins as he has, as many state championships as he has. And for me, I, I think he's underappreciated. I think a basketball aficionado might say, yeah, you know what, Bob Fry was one of the best, but to, to the casual fan, he gets overlooked. Well, just to put it into perspective, you, you mentioned the state championships and his overall wins. In 34 years, he finished third most in New Jersey history with 777 wins, 12 state championships, and he actually won two tournament of champions, 1999, and they came back in 2006 to win it for a second time. But you talked about the talent on the team when you played. Give me give me some more background. Who else was on that team with you? Oh, man, my, my friend, really, because we all grew up playing for the same. <laughs> we grew up playing for the same uh, local AAU team. We, we played for the for PPY of East Starnes and our team was all East Starnes kids as we grew we mixed in a couple from North and a couple from Irvington but we would always play the state tournaments for AAU we would play in New York locally but we never had enough money to play in Nationals I think we did it maybe once but we all played together since we were nine years old and man my, our point our guard at that time was Brandon Knight who went on to Pittsburgh and had a, had a great career and Amil Mitchell, um, who ended up playing Division Two basketball. Both of those guys are a year older than me, and they went to Seton Hall Prep. For old-timers like Mike and I, Brandon Knight was Brevin Knight's uh, brother, who also played for the Prep when I was in high school. Right. So we grew up playing in, in Brandon's backyard. So Mr. Knight and Brevin Knight, like, those guys are hard on us while trying to teach us the game. But Brandon and I met with our point guards. And then we had uh, Mark Curry, who at the time when we were coming through middle school, he and I were the same height. So locally, they called us the Twin Towers. And it's weird that it, I ended up doing kind of the same thing in college. But in middle school, I told Mark, we're going to the same high school no matter what. And his father was a teacher at East Orange High School. So he was kind of slated to go to one of the East Orange public schools. And then we started talking to Seton Hall Prep thing. And that's how he and I ended up at a at Seton Hall Prep. And then we had the, the best kid in North was Tyrone Barley at the time. And he came. And then the best kid in South Orange was the kid, Robert Sullivan. And he came. The rest of that class was all local guys that just knew how to play. So by the time we were juniors and seniors, it, it was it was just one big happy family. Well, speaking of that senior season, you guys had some special moments. I want to start with this game that you guys played in late January against number one St. Pat's in the uh, coalition to house the home, homeless classic. I don't know if you remember, but 
St. Pat's has got beaten you kind of twice the year before, including the finals of the tournament of champions. Tell us about that game. Uh, uh, it, it was it was it was a redemption game for us. Um, it was a time when I was trying to establish myself as the best junior in the state. Herve Lamazama was trying to establish himself as the best junior in the state, and Sam Dallimper had already come to Seton Hall. So we're, we're obviously undersized, but we knew that we had a chance to beat those guys. And, the game actually started off kind of funky because I had two fouls in like the first quarter. And with Coach Farrell, if you get two fouls in the first half, you got to sit. So I ended up sitting the rest of the first quarter, all of the second, and just salivating to get back into the game. And luckily, man, we pulled it out. I think I, I think I finished with like 25 in that game. I'm not sure, but it, it was packed. And that's yeah, I mean, he's got it. He's got it spot on to the point, man. He's got 25. He was right. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, that that game was was probably one of the best atmospheres, man, because I think before our game play, I think Rashid Dunbar had a great game for Maris. He just had like 32 or something like that, and then we, we were the nightcap game, and for us to come from behind in that second half and, and come out on top was, was a testament. I think, honestly, we might have held them to like 12 second half points. Or something crazy like that, or fourth quarter points. It was weird. So I, I thought it was your senior season. You you corrected it. This was your junior season, and you're like spot on. So going into the fourth quarter, you basically held them without a basket for like the first six and a half minutes of the fourth quarter. And in that fourth quarter alone, the article basically said that you had had four steals all by yourself. And you end up basically trailing by five going into the fourth, and you guys kind of bloom out 62-47 as the final. Yeah, but and, and that's, that's coaching, man. It, it, it was Bob Farrell's way of the way he taught the game was just you you were never by up you were never up enough you were never down enough you know and then you always respected the talent and you always uh, played with class and we, we've been a lot of wars up until that point and St. Pat's had just beaten us the year before in the finals with, with Al Harrington and Suleiman Muhammad so we felt like we had to get those guys back and a couple plays went our way and once the once they cracked we, we just kept pushing and kept going and we, that, that, like I said, that's one of the, the biggest wins of my high school career. So you also made reference in that game that you were playing up against Sam Dellenbert, who also went on to Seton Hall uh, a year ahead of you. Sam had six blocks in the first half. How intimidating was Sammy in the middle? And did you know that you know he was going to be that kind of a presence when you got to play with him at Seton Hall? Um, I, I knew from the year before. You know, um, we knew all about Sam, but actually, I, I might have tip dumped on Sam in that same game. That, that pretty much all <laughs> I in the second half, quite honestly. But he, um, he. The same way he was in high school is what he provided in college. And for him to play as long as he did uh, in the NBA, you know, that's a testament to his ability. A lot of guys aren't just happy with running the floor, rebounding and blocking shots. And, and obviously he was a pro at that at a, high, at a high school level. Now your run at Seton Hall prep was fantastic, not only because of your the TOC win in 99, but you guys actually made it to the finals two years prior what did it finally mean to you to finally win that title? It was huge because at that time, many freshmen, well, only one other freshman played varsity at Seton Hall Prep at that tournament. And Coach Farrell wasn't an advocate of it. So I was the first guy to do it. And to be a freshman on that team, we lost to St. Anthony's and actually get the game and play. I've always wanted that feeling of what it, what it was to win it. And we lost to St. Anthony's my freshman year. We lose to St. Pat's my, my sophomore year. So for us to, to play in my junior season, the way we were rolling against uh, T-Mex, we had to get it. It, it, it. We couldn't beat the Buffalo Bills of high school basketball. Like, it, it just <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't work. It would not have worked at all. And it was like a culmination of things. The, the saddest part about my whole high school story 
for me is that I know for a fact we could have won two in a row. I know for a fact if I didn't break my foot my senior year, we would have beaten Camden. And then I think at that point, people would have mentioned Coach Fowle as one of the, the greatest across the board because now he did it twice. He did it more than once, which only St. Anne's had done, and he went back-to-back. And I, I think because that didn't happen, I think he becomes one of as opposed to one of the top two. So you've mentioned a bunch of teams that you've played through that run. And I'm just wondering who your biggest rivals were. I know you're not going to say my hometown team of Columbia High School in Maplewood, but <laughs> who was your biggest rival during that time period? Man, um, I do not mean this in the most arrogant way, but in order for there to be a rival, there has to be like a back and forth. There weren't too many back and forth competition for us in Jersey in those four years. Um, but of, out of everyone, it would have to be St. Pat's. It would have to be St. Pat's. Um, St. Anthony's, we only ran into them once in the TLC finals my freshman year. The public schools, they, they were they were okay. They were solid, but nothing really – it was just – there wasn't a match. It was never – I never felt like it was even or I played a game where I'm like, man, we, we might – this one going to be tough. And I've only had those feelings when we either played St. Pat's or St. Joe's Matucha when they had Jay Wills. Oh, that, yes. Outside of that. I forgot about St. Joseph's. Those They were tough back then. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't there weren't any real um, rivalries, but we, we played a lot of hard four games. You know, a lot of teams gave us their best shot and we had to respond. I only lost like seven games in high school. Oh, man. Our last two years of my junior year and my senior year, we, we didn't lose until the TLC finals. So I started my junior year. Our next loss in Jersey came my senior year and the TLC finals in a game that I didn't even play. So it's, it's an interesting point about Coach Farrell because, like you said, if you don't break your foot and maybe you go back to a fourth straight tournament of champions final, winning or no, not winning. Did. Oh, you did, even with even with, with your broken foot. Right, I didn't play. I, ah, I, I, okay. broke, I broke my foot on a Monday in January before we played Rice at Seton Hall. We, my, Seton Hall Prep, and that was supposed to be the premier game. Seton Hall Prep versus Rice. I'm going to Seton Hall. Dre Barrett's going to Seton Hall. Right. And that game was played at Walsh Gym, and I broke my foot on a Monday because the game was rescheduled, and we played Monday, and I broke my foot. And the Rice game, I think, was like that Saturday or something. And we actually ended up beating Rice. Like, I, my, I played on a very good high school team. And I, that's why I say to uh, people at Seton Hall Prep, this might have been the best uh, Seton Hall Prep team ever. So you really think that from a recognition perspective, it was all about winning the TOC? Because to get there Absolutely. four straight years, that's quite an accomplishment in itself, no? Yeah, but who, who remembers second place? <laughs> we do 1989 Seton Hall <laughs> oh Tommy okay hold on hold on before we go that 2000 Camden team did, was that the uh, Dejan Wagner team yeah, yeah that was Dejan Wagner Arthur Barkley and and that team they, they beat us by four there's no way in, in, in my heart of hearts that if I play you think we will lose that game man the people in Camden know it Dejan know it when I see him and Arthur, we talk about it. And that game was, was phenomenal, man. That's probably – those TOC final games weren't like what they are today, man. It was a lot more focus and attention to high school basketball. The atmosphere was great. I, think I these love kids it. today, they're missing out on, on what, what the basketball experience truly was in high school. So you had this stellar um, <laughs> basketball career in high school, and now the colleges are coming out to see you. Who is recruiting you outside of Seton Hall? Man, like that part of my life, honestly, it, it's 
was such a blur because so much was happening and things were happening so fast. And I ended up committing in July. So I didn't really have the full-on experience that a lot of these kids end up getting. I was thinking about going to UMass. And the reason I was going to go to UMass is my cousin was playing football there. So I used to go up there every Saturday watch his football games. And in my the end of my my sophomore year, they had won a national championship, Division One Double S. And I was on the campus and I seen how live it was. And I'm like, oh man, I want to go here. So I'm talking to Eddie like, yo, but we should go to UMass. So Eddie was all on board with us going to, to UMass. And then as the recruiting process started to, to pick up, obviously things took a different turn. So then the, the next step was, you know what, Pittsburgh. I'm gonna go to Pittsburgh. So I'm talking to Eddie like, hey, man, I think we should go to Pitt because Brandon is over there. I play with him all my life. He's a winner, yada, yada, yada. So this is like during the high school season. He like, I don't know. I'm like, Eddie, come on, trust me, it'll work. Like, I'm not going I'm not going to set us up. So Pittsburgh is, is leading the race. And then uh, I think we had like a tournament. Something happened during my – sophomore year and I think Seen Hall had an unofficial visit and they had me, Rashid, Dunbar and Eddie up there together and that was the first time I looked at it and said Yo, this this could work, this this really could work and, I, and that, that was a, that was the probably the best thing Seen Hall did and I think Tommy, other than Tommy I think that was a Fred Hill thing to get me, Rashid and Eddie up there together at once because we all played on the same AU team and um, the only reason Rashid didn't go because he got into that major car accident in his senior year and he was in a coma we didn't even know if he was going to make it once I decided you know what Seton Hall is the place I then had to convince Andre because Andre was really going to go to North Carolina and then I had to convince Eddie because I had already told him about UMass and Pitt so I had to get those two things off his head to kind of shift towards Seno. Okay so so this is where I want to clear the air. I mean everybody knows about <laughs> the heralded recruiting class of you, Eddie and Andre and I've heard different stories. We've had people on the podcast talking about this, the recruitment story. What comes down to it from when I hear the bottom line of most of these stories is that you were the Pied Piper. You were the one kind of in everybody's ear that kind of brought it all together. Dre tells his version. We've heard different versions from reading about what Eddie has said. Clear the air. Who, who orchestrated this whole thing? Well, Eddie and I put on the same AU team. And I actually convince Eddie before I convince Andre. Eddie, myself and Eddie were talking to Dre. I stayed talking to Dre and his parents. Eddie didn't do much talking. So the way it ended up happening is when they went to the McDonald's game or USA, whatever they did, somehow, who group, they ended up in the same room. So they built their own relationship, but they were rooming together at these camps and all-star games. I was talking to Dre and his parents behind the scenes. So once I committed, Eddie saw I was serious, and then I went and started applying pressure to Dre and his moms. Then Andre committed. At that point, Eddie had already played with me. We already had a relationship. Eddie and Andre had developed their own relationship. It was easier for me to sell Seton Hall to Eddie because of those two situations. So now I'm at Eddie. Now I'm at Eddie, and Eddie finally did it, and that's how it happened. So now Seton Hall has their greatest recruiting class ever. I think it's. Uh, I don't think I'm wrong saying that. Through Three top 100 recruits with a team that just made the Sweet 16 returning Ty Shine, Dallenberg, Darius Lane, and Greg Morton from that team. Additionally, we had UNLV transfer Desmond Herod coming in, and we get a preseason uh, ranking of number nine in the country. Do you think there was a lot of pressure to live up to that ranking and the success the previous team had? One guy in North Carolina ranked us the number one team in the country, and after his publication come out, rest in peace, he, he died like the next day or something. But whether it was number nine or number one, the pressure 
pressure to win at the college level always existed. As freshmen, though, you don't know that, so we didn't feel it. We didn't know what it was like. We we thought that this is what it's supposed to be because of the, the high school careers we had and the success that we were having during our off-season workouts and preseason training. We thought everything that was happening at Seton Hall at that time was status quo. Nothing mattered um, from years past. We knew we had a good team. We knew those guys had just went to the Sweet 16, and we just wanted to join them to kind of catapult the university forward. But Tom brings up a good point, though. He mentions all these names of guys that were there. Desmond was transferring in three new players with your group. And I think you had a couple other guys in your class as well. Sometimes the chemistry could be off. Seton Hall had their go-to leader, an outspoken leader in Shaheen Holloway graduate the year before. So now there, there was this perception of a p- potential power struggle of the old, the upperclassmen versus the, the new freshman studs. Did you ever feel like the chemistry was off? amongst the team? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we, we knew it from day one. We knew it from day one. There were times where we had practice at the Netherlands and, you know, we're freshmen. So they say, you know, let's get to the van at 12 o'clock. So we get there 11.50, 11.45. We're on time. We're early. Upperclassmen guys will come look in the van and then they go get another van. Or when we were at practice, they'd rather be on the teams together. So we, we, we're noticing like, like we're accepted. It's obvious that we can play with those guys, but it was still like a little hangover because you got to match. And I don't come to this realization at that time. I'm older now, so I can look back on it in retrospect. But these are guys that won the team that went to the Sweet 16, and they had a lot of success. They made a bad school run, but all the talk is about these incoming freshmen. They, that was the talk while they're making their run. That's the talk after their run. That's the talk in the preseason. And it, and, it, and those guys kind of get overlooked, you know? And it's not like it's their team. It's it, it, Now it becomes the freshman team with who's already there as opposed to with who's already there plus the freshman. And, but I found out later that Tommy almost made the mistake during Midnight Madness of having the freshman and whomever sat out, which was Desmond, he sat out when he transferred that year, and uh, Raheem Carter, who transferred from Mammoth, he had sat out. So it was going to be the freshman, the three of us, Damian Frey, who was our fourth guy, who I believe was a top 100 at that time. So I think we had four top 100. So it was us four, and then we would have had Desmond and Raheem during the blue-white game. That would have been the scrimmage. Then us six versus whomever else. And I would have I bet on you guys. <laughs> yeah, but but that just goes to show you that Tommy, as a young coach, didn't see the the deception or the split that was already brewing and building. Or even if there wasn't, you don't even want to give that perception of young versus old. And I think Tommy wanted to do what was best for the program and the fans from his viewing point. I don't think he thought that we would ruffle anybody's feathers, that anybody would have any um, negative vibes toward it. I think as a staff, they might have missed what the potential fires could have been because by the time Midnight Madness came, there was already smoke. It wasn't nothing that that we would bring up. We just took it on the chin and kept it moving. But if we paid attention to certain things, you would see that something just wasn't right. Well, you bring up that there was smoke already during Midnight Madness. That's never a good thing. But later in the season, things started kind of falling apart. There was a tough overtime loss in Illinois where you had a big lead at half. And then finally mm-hmm. things came to a head uh, at, a, at a loss at Georgetown. Uh, right. if you, what right. happened in that locker room that day? Well, the Illinois game was the straw that broke the camel's back. Let me just fast forward real quick. Everybody that was on that team that's, that's still here, even Kevin before he passed, we, we have all at some point uh, made peace. We're all 
friends, we communicate as best we can or whenever we see each other. So the, the, the things that I'm speaking about now are the issues that as young adults or even teenagers, that's what we were as freshmen, we weren't able to fix on the fly like most people can now as adults. But the, the straw that brought the camel's back was Illinois, and, and it's weird because it actually happened at the end of the first half. We've already felt that Darius was selfish, but we thought Ty was more selfish of a player. And prior to the Illinois game, maybe two games before that, we had a team meeting with no coaches involved. During the meeting, we had the upperclassmen telling us, well, Andre, you shouldn't be a starter. Ty just took the team to the Sweet 16. He should be starting. Marcus, you shouldn't be a starter. Reggie Garrett waited his whole time. He was saying that he should be starting. The only one that should be starting is Eddie. So we're in a hotel. This is a, a night before a game. I, I can't remember the game. And they're telling us they're discontent with the coach's decisions. And we're defending ourselves in our position. And I think Reggie Garrett actually was the one that ended up mediating the whole situation and said, no, these guys earned it. That was the coach's thing. Uh, I could tell you that they're talented. But he spoke on our behalf in front of the team. And that kind of brought the, the meeting to an end. So then when we go into Illinois, it's the end of the half. I think I strip the ball. I knock it away. Eddie picks it up, gives it to Ty. Eddie and I are now running the floor, and it's like it's a countdown of like five, four, three. Eddie and I are in front of the play somewhere around the basket, and Ty pulls up for a three with like three, like two or three seconds left um, at the half. And we could have went up 22, but we, we're walking in the tunnel like this is – this is the selfish play. Could have just passed it the ball, yada, yada, yada. Those negative vibes, we come back in the second half. Frank Williams plays like an All-American against a young Andre Barrett, and the rest is history. So that's interesting because it all comes back to, I'm not trying to pick on Ty, but it comes back to the point guard again, right? So here's Dre, who goes on to become this great leader of of the program in, in the years to follow, was there this kind of who could run the ship type of leadership control at that point? I mean, I, I listened to Dre in another interview talk about how he got on campus as soon as he could over that summer when you guys had committed and he was working out with Shaw and he was working out with all the players. And there was a rumor that guys like Darius were picking up the phone and calling Ty down in Georgia saying, you better get back up here because, you know, Dre's, Dre's running the show. And, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a fact. That happened. Both those things happened. Dre from the beginning wanted to establish himself as a leader so that by the time we started preseason workouts his presence had already been felt Ty going into his senior year junior year junior junior he's going to his junior he felt like he thought what he did before was enough and that I don't think I, I think he underestimated how good Andre Barrett was and once he realized that once he had that that old shit moment it was too late <laughs> Well, this is the, like this is not to pick on Ty. I mean, I thought Ty was a you know a very competent player in his first two years, but he has this magical breakout moment in the Temple game when Holloway kind of sprains his ankle and goes off for I believe it was twenty five or twenty seven, and, and they upset Temple. I felt like you know, or I think the fan base was like, hey this is the guy now. And I think he thought he was the guy now at that point. And he was resting on the laurels of that performance, not realizing that he had an all American type player that was going to come in and push him for that starting job. Well, you can't take anything from what Todd did the year before. And if I, if I'm him in that situation, regardless of who's who Seton Hall brings in, 
I feel like it's my spot because I've earned it. But that doesn't mean that I stopped working. And I don't know if Ty stopped working. I just know Drake kept working. And when it came down to it, in practice, Tyshawn versus Andre Barrett, and there's no knock on Ty. Dre was just a better player. I'm not saying that because I'm I'm, I'm friends with Dre uh, and we've known each other for so long. Today, if I had to pick Andre Barrett or, or Ty, I'm going to pick Andre because I've seen on a daily basis he outplayed Ty. Did Ty have a day or, or, or his moments? Absolutely. But consistently, that freshman year, Andre Barrett was, was just a better point guard. Now, you mentioned even during the team meeting, the, the old upperclassmen didn't have a problem with Eddie. And now Eddie was clearly, Eddie Griffin was clearly a special talent. And many close to him have said that he was often misunderstood when it came to the media. And, and personally, I, I always find it kind of uh, hysterical that people look at 18, 19 year old kids as if they should be acting as adults. Uh, for those who didn't have a chance to be around him firsthand, how would you describe Eddie both as a player and a person? Man, loyal. Yesterday marked the 12th year of passing, August 17th, 07. Loyal. And everything that he did, whether it was a, a friendship relationship, a, a basketball relationship, that he was loyal. And he was true to himself. So him being misunderstood comes from people that, that don't know him or never took the time to want to wanna get to know him. Eddie is the kind of person that if he give you his word, he's stuck by it. He didn't say much. You know, he and I argued. He and I got into it over video games before. <laughs> you know, but, but we're friends. We're brothers. So it, it never spilled over. Now, if he didn't know you and y'all arguing over a video game and you say the wrong thing, he's not loyal to you, you know, and things can go left. But he worked hard and he, and he just got it done, man. He had his own sense of humor, you know. Eddie had to be a good guy. I used to go down and stay at his house when I was in high school. I used to jump on a train and go down there. He used to jump on a train and come up here. You can't do those kinds of things with, with people that, are, that aren't just good people. You know, he he wasn't in the trouble. He wasn't having issues. The issues that, that Eddie had, like in high school, he punched his teammate. But they don't tell you that the teammate kept trying to disrespect Eddie in front of everybody. Did he handle it the best way? No. But do people absolutely react the way he would? Absolutely. That doesn't make him a bad person. He made a bad decision. So if you're going to be misunderstood because of a bad decision, I think we're, we're judging kids a little too harsh. Because we get to a point where we, as adults, sometimes, like, we, we tend to forget or some people tend to forget that they too have made mistakes and because they were so many years ago they, they think they can run the rest of their life on the scale and it's like no like you became the person you are because of the mistakes that you've made and Eddie along his path made high school mistakes so for him to be judged as a high school kid in the NBA and being labeled as uh, misunderstood or angry and having these demons like to this day that still bothers me because y'all don't y'all don't know Eddie he's not those things it may appear to somebody that way because they don't know. And Eddie didn't talk a lot, so I can understand. When you don't speak a lot, people are left to formulate their own opinions. But as somebody that's been close to him uh, during his, the latter part of his life, I think those things have misrepresented um, him as a person. He's one of the, the best friends I've ever had. Well, let's let's kind of stick with that for a second. So staying down the lines of misunderstood or just making a mistake, is that how you would categorize what happened between Ty and Eddie post-Georgetown game? I think Eddie made a terrible decision. I can't even blame Ty for it, but it was a culmination of things. Eddie could have went to the league out of high school. That that was an option. He was going to be a first-round pick out of high school. So <laughs> I choose to go to college. I'm with my friends at our Canada's University and. I, I want to win. And during that Georgetown game, it was a close game. And Tommy Amaker, I forget the play call, but it was basically 
a, a pick and pop from the top of the key. He called it twice. The first two times, Ty shot the ball when he came off because Tommy told him to throw back to Eddie. So the first time he shot. The second time he came, I believe he passed to Darius and Darius shot. Tommy calls timeout. Because now you got to understand, it's been a culmination of we feel like these guys are selfish. They're playing the buddy-buddy ball. They're not really including us as much as they should. So now Tommy calls timeout, and Tommy draws the play, and he says, throw the ball back to Eddie. At that point, Eddie was already upset, and, and he tells Ty, during the timeout, don't throw it to me this time. Watch what happens. Go out on the floor. Now, Ty is also a man at this point, and he runs the play. He doesn't throw the ball. Daddy, forget what he does. Whatever he does, he doesn't throw it to Eddie. Eddie doesn't forget it. And I just told you he had man of his word. We lose the game. The game is over. Tyshawn is first in line going back to the locker room. Eddie is second. And I already know what Eddie just said to Ty. And I'm third. So Eddie starts to pick up his pace. I start to to jog. And as I'm jogging, Jimmy Salmon, who was our AAU coach at that time, he goes, hurry up because he saw Eddie's face. When I get to the locker room, I hear Eddie say to Ty, so what's up? When somebody say, so what's up, in an angry tone, that means they want to fight. Ty's response was, it's whatever, meaning if we're going to do it, let's do it. And as soon as I opened the door, it was like a split second Eddie had hit Ty. I jump in the middle. I push Eddie back. I push Ty back. And I'm saying, chill. Now you can hear the commotion. The team comes in. The fourth person in, because I was third, was Kevin Wilkins. So as I push Eddie back and I'm telling Ty to chill and I turn, Kevin punches me in the face. Kevin punched me. The fifth person in was Freddie Hill. Freddie Hill is now yelling at Kevin, you want to hit somebody? Hit me. Kevin hit me. Now, at this point, punches are just flying everywhere now because it's a brawl at this point. When the room stops, Tommy Ellis gets a hold of it. The room is split. And ironically, the team that T.A. wanted to put on the floor for Midnight Madness was on one side and everybody else was on the other side. Georgetown had two separate places you could shower, so we had to shower that way. You know, we couldn't even mix with each other. And at this point, um, now I'm upset. I got hit, then I got to hit somebody. I'm defending myself. And uh, once it settles, now me being uh, a teenager... What do I do when I get hit? I call and tell my friends back in North New Jersey, East Orange, New Jersey. So all all I do is just add to the chaos, but it, it was already people point to the fight at Georgetown, but the, the wheels were already off at that point. That, that, that just culminated what was already nasty. So many Seton Hall fans love to dump on Tommy Amaker for the way he left, for the way he handled the teams. But in all seriousness, do you think a more experienced coach would have been able to handle the team chemistry issues and maybe handle Eddie's needs in a more productive fashion? Um, to be honest, I, I don't know. I don't know. I will say I didn't understand why Tommy left until 2007. It hurt. It hurt. For seven years after Tommy left, he and I didn't speak. The next time we spoke was at Eddie's room. And I don't know if he knew how upset I was. But we ended up having a conversation. I was able to let it out. But at that time, when you're 18, 19, you don't understand the business of college basketball. Like Nowadays, when you're 18, 19, you totally understand. But back then, it wasn't as publicized. It wasn't the forefront of anything. Like, I, my coach left. Like, why are you leaving? Like, you lied to me. You just sat in my living room and said, if if I come and I get my friends to come, you, you'll see to it that we graduate the whole night. And then after one year, you leave. Like, I was stuck. So when T.A., 
I mean, I tell you, when the, pa- when the papers talk about guys crying in the locker room, that was myself and Andre. Because here I am, I'm like, I done spoke to people's parents and my friends and trying to get them to believe in the, the, the mission and, and, the, and the, the, the legacy of, the, of this program. And, and then you, you up and leave. So I felt like I lied to them. I let myself down. I know Dre felt like, man, I, I could have just went to North Carolina for all this. And, you know, when, when you're losing, you know, everything is a problem. Winning has a lot of things, but the fact that we were losing, and then on top of that, you decide to leave. Like man, that that was almost that's like the worst thing at that time I felt he could have done. And, and quite honestly, if Ta doesn't leave, Sam or Eddie don't go to the dress. Like we would have that same team back with a way to figure it out to make sure that it worked. So when you ask it a more experienced coach handle it, I mean, I don't know because then you got some young coaches that that are geniuses and get it. And you got some veteran coaches that still don't understand it. So to say one versus the other, um, it wouldn't be fair to T.A. Um, I, I do believe what he wanted to put together and, and what it came with, I don't think he truly understood everything that it came with because he never had it. He was a part of it at Duke, but he never had to control it on his own. I, I, I do think that may have played um, some a part in it. So that's interesting. You say that if Tommy would have stayed, you also believe that Eddie and Sammy don't don't leave. How special could that team have been if all the talent had stayed together for let's say another year or two? Nah, if I lie. we all like ifs, don't we? But in my in my mind, if that team is together another year, I think we we do great things. You gotta understand, man. Like I can't think of another word, but I guess you gotta be like rock stars to to kind of describe us as freshmen or or Seton Hall at that time because we had everybody on campus. Ben Gorin, Charlie Villanueva, Luol Dang, Ike Diago. Like, everybody was considering Seton Hall. Like, it was a thing to to, want to go and and play for Seton Hall. And even with Ben Gorin, up until even when Coach Orr came in, it still came down to Ben Gorin and, and John Allen. You know, and at that time, um, Lewis or like John Allen better. But I, I said to say it wasn't just a a, um, a flash in the pan kind of thing. It, it would have had long term results and success had everybody just stayed the course and stayed on target. We we wouldn't have went through five or six coaches. You know, I, I don't think we would have had a drop off in, in trying to recruit the area. Like you got to strike on the iron top, man. And I think at that time, Dre was like the number three player in New York. You know, I was considered the best player in Jersey. Eddie was the best player in Pennsylvania and America. You know, we had a chance to to capitalize on it, even with us not having as much success as we should have had in our first year. So next season, like you mentioned, we lose Coach Amaker to Michigan. Eddie and Sammy go to the NBA. Bunch of seniors leave, and we get Louis Orr as a new coach. All that turnovers got to shake the team up and you, you lose your consistency. And it seemed like you had a, uh, a rough patch with uh, Louis Orr to start off with. Uh, were you and Coach Orr just not on the same page? Worst basketball year of my life. Thought about quitting, questioned why didn't I transfer. It, 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 was, it was the worst feeling I have ever had on a basketball court, being a part of a basketball team. And I'm glad it happened because I have a story for kids that are go- that go through the same situations. I have a story to for kids so that they they understand that you know it ain't gonna always be the way that you want it to be, and you got to figure it out. And in my sophomore year, 
I'm like, all right, I'm returning. It's my sophomore year. We got a new coach. And Fat Lewis Orwitz, the only time I believe he seen me play in high school was when he was with Syracuse and we beat St. Pat's at the, for the Homeless Coalition in Elizabeth. He was at that game. So in my mind, I'm like, all right, well, at least we're getting a coach that, that has seen me play before. At our first meeting, individual meeting, myself and Coach Orr, he starts telling me all the things that he's not going to allow me to do on the, on the court this year. So that already run me the wrong way because I, I thought I had a, a, a decent freshman year um, statistically. It was something I could, I could build on. And I was looking for my sophomore year to kind of to get things rolling. And he already planted a seed of what I'm not going to do. So I already had an issue with that. And then we our first game is at San Francisco. And he, kept, he keeps putting me in, taking me out, putting me in, taking me out. So I never got into a rhythm during that game. And I thought I was playing well. You know, I did the usual Marcus thing with trying to just fill a, the box score, some points, some rebounds, some steals, some assists. And I thought I was playing okay, but he, I was I felt like a yo-yo. And after that, that first game, it might have been our second game, but I, I just know it was our first away game. He addresses the team, and he goes, it's hard, I'm a new coach. And I just had this look of death on my face. I'm not interested in nothing he's saying. Because, I, I mind you, he already told me what I'm not going to be able to do. And then you got me on a yo-yo. So we didn't get off to the best stuff. And as the season went along, it was more of the same. And I was just totally against it. And the, the reason being is I wanted to play the way Tommy recruited me to play. And Louie wanted me to play the way he saw fit for his system. And I spent my whole sophomore year fighting the system. And I tell kids these days when you're choosing a college, forget the, the size of the school or what the, the history of the school is. Man, you got to pick the system that best fits you because if not, then you're not going to be happy. And that's ultimately what my, my sophomore year was like, just me not being happy. You, you weren't happy because he didn't play you. I mean, you were averaging only 14 minutes a game. You only started 10 out of the 30 games on the schedule. You're used to being the man, and now you're not playing. So, I mean, how difficult was that aspect of just not being on the floor? Uh, that was hard. That was hard because I'm home, and we only get four tickets for, for a game. But somehow the casual fan from my area was at these games. People came to watch it. My mom was there. And for a while, for a long time, I didn't even let my mother come to my, my basketball games growing up because I always thought I had to be the best player in order for her to come. So she really didn't start coming to high school games until I was a junior in high school. That's when I, I said, okay, you can come. And even then, um, she couldn't make a lot of games. Like, we, we grew up in, in poverty. We didn't have it all. She didn't have a car. So getting the games just was a task. In college, she didn't miss one home game. And aside from me feeling how I feel about not playing, I, I felt bad for her because, you know, that that's Marcus Toniel's mother. That's Miss Toniel, and her son's not getting in the game. So um, that bothered me. That stuck with me. And just to know that you could be basically at the top and things are, can be going in the right direction and just to have it all crumble. Like, I, I really watched it crumble from, I want to say, three quarters of the way through my freshman season toward the middle of my sophomore season. It was, it was a major drop-off, and that's disheartening. And, and it's hard to handle. You start questioning everything and everybody. And the only thing that, that saved me with basketball was at the end of my sophomore year, the coaches were having a meeting, and I was already disgruntled by this point, so I can care less about the meeting. But I walk in unannounced, 
And I don't even know what came over me. I just looked at Coach Moore. I said, I'm going to be the captain of this team. And he said, I approve it. And I walked out. And that was like the rebirth or the, uh, the reborn of me having a love and a passion and a drive to, to now. Now I'm at this point where I got to prove to you that you're making a mistake. That was my motivation. Well, the team went 12-18 and 18 in your sophomore season. You walk in, you tell Coach Orr, I'm going to be the captain. And your junior season, it started building up. You went 17-13, and 13, made the NIT. What, besides you taking that next leap, changed between those two years? Um, trust. I think Coach Orr did a, a good job of team building and character building. Once he had what he wanted in place, what the roles were going to be, he had players to, to play those roles. Um, it was easy for him to game plan and, and get things done. We went from a team that could outscore you. Like my freshman year, we was trying to score. My sophomore year, to be honest, it was it's, it's such a blur. I can't even tell you what he was trying to do. But we, we ended up becoming this gritty team that, that defended. We didn't mind low-scoring games, but we had enough pieces that can score. And I think that's what made it made us exciting to either watch or be around because everybody that played gave it 100%. Nobody cheated the game. And you always felt like this team had a chance to, to, to beat anybody on any given day because of the way we, how hard we played. So that year, I thought you guys deserved to get into the tournament. You guys had won 10 Big East games. We even had your previous teammate on, Donald Copeland, on the podcast. And he's like, wow. He's like, everybody on the team felt like it was a big snub. You guys played a game to end the Big East regular season up at Providence that went to overtime. If you guys win that game, does everybody feel like you're a lock to get in? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't remember that game, but I remember losing at Providence at the, the, the Dunkin' Donuts Center. But honestly, it, it's always been tough with Seton Hall went up to Providence too, and I don't know why. But we, we don't we don't fare well playing at Providence. And Boston College that same year had 10 wins, and we thought both of us was getting in, if not both of us, then one of us. And when it didn't happen, it was deflating. People that, that on the outside looking in, it's like, all right, you didn't get in, but you still have the NIT to play. But you don't know the emotions that, that go into it that makes kids. Because that's what we are at the time. We're kids, and it's like, I don't even want to play anymore. If it ain't the NCAA tournament, I don't want to play it. Like, I come from, we came from an AAU program where we didn't play consolation games. It was either you play on Sunday, which is the championship, or you lose in the playoffs, but we didn't play consolation games. So in college, the NIT was the consolation tournament. Like, nobody's, you don't get up for it now. Now, as an adult, and I look at it, I see it as another opportunity to play, and you got to kind of instill that in kids. But that's not something that you, you look forward to, especially when you think your body of work allows you to be in the NCAA tournament. It's like, damn NIT. <laughs> Mike and I usually joke <laughs> saying that Seton Hall should never accept an invitation to the NIT because we never seem to do well, no matter how good the team is. <laughs> it's, it's a waste. My, my my freshman year, we like the NIT. I got a concussion that game playing down in Alabama. Like it's just, there's nothing. When you're a teenager, there's nothing positive that you can think of about the NIT. Only adults understand it, you know, or or kids that don't have the opportunities that you have when you're playing in the um, in the best conference in the in the country. Like when you're playing in the Big East and it's the number one league in the country, you're not thinking about the NIT. All you're thinking about is playing against more of the best. So it's kind of hard to say, all right, come on, let's go play the NIT to somebody that's, that, that that sees that as like beneath. And I know that's a bad way of looking at it, but that's a reality of how uh, kids in those situations are, are going to see it. 
Well, maybe maybe it would have been looked upon differently back in the day if Seton Hall, when they got snubbed, got a one seed or a two seed in the NIT and got to play in Walsh Gym in front of their fans. Back then, they were always getting shipped to the other campus of the opponent, which right. makes it even harder, right? They're they're juiced up. This is like their Super Bowl, you know, Old Dominion, Rhode Island, Alabama, and and they're they're getting right. packed right. houses. I mean, if we would have played the game in Walsh. You know, maybe the fans could have given a little bit of an appreciation of the season and rallied behind the team. You go to Rhode Island and you're just like, eh, I get it. No, that's true. And that's why we scheduled Rhode Island the following year after we lost to them up there. Well, the next season, your senior season comes along and you made sure that the decision was taken out of the selection committee's hands. You won three top 25 victories. You had another 10 Big East wins and you won 20 overall. What happened there? I mean, you, you, you said you bought in. You said there was more trust. How did you guys make that super leap? That that's, that's It was just more of that. I think in order for Coach Forrest's system to work, then I had to be the, the, the glue guy, the linchpin to, to hold everything together. John Allen, Andre Barrett, Kelly Whitney, those guys were going to do what they do. And <laughs> they had a lot of success. Andre, Andre uh, Sweet and J.R. Morris, um, their contributions, Donald Copeland, you know, um, were very necessary. Now was how do you keep both of those intact and I, I just because there has to be a guy that's going to sacrifice everything and as much as I wanted to to be a leading scorer or a leading rebounder as much as I wanted to be the guy that just wasn't my role and the more I bought into my role and made it better for the other guys on my on our team and their success allowed me to thrive better in my role and ultimately we ended up um having a, a pretty good senior season. So Marcus, there was one game though that stands out in my opinion. And and it was a win at Continental in double overtime against number four ranked pit. You guys win sixty eight to sixty seven. Tell me what you remember about that game. Oh man. I, I remember the fans rushing the court. That game was so um epic. I think even down to the last shot and we had to get the rebound because they had the last look at the basket. It, it was it was such back and forth in it. And Pitt was always gonna be tough because um for for Brandon and he, he he's a good leader. He's a great leader actually. He was able to get his guys to play at such a high level because for him it wasn't just Pitt versus Seton Hall. It was Seton Hall that recruited me. It was one of my best friends didn't come to school with me. So he had a chip on his shoulder, and his teammates played with that chip on their shoulder. <laughs> and every time we played them, it was tough. So for us to have them on our home floor, number four makes them vulnerable because of the way we were, we were playing at that time. We were rolling. It was just unbelievable. If I'm not mistaken, I think J.R. Morris, I think he hit a big three, uh, two big threes, actually, late in that second half, and we ended up pulling it out. Well, J.R. had a big game. Andre had a huge game, 20 points, six assists, and no turnovers in 49 minutes of play. What kind of player and leader had Andre become by his senior season? By his senior year, Dre was more vocal. He was an action guy. He always led by example. He became more vocal, and you could see his determination that this is my chance at, at, at being a pro. And you fed off of it. You didn't want to let Dre down. You know, it wasn't at this point. It wasn't about Coach Orr, um, Coach Garrett, Coach Nash, or, or Coach Dunn. It was more about your teammates. We didn't want to let Dre down. We didn't want to let Kelly down. You know, we didn't want to let each other down. We we literally played for the guy next to us. And we approached it every game like it was a war. 
So Dre did a, a, an amazing job at commanding his teammates' respect and then going out and leading the way that, that he played, which was aggressive and hard. Well, John Allen had a quote, though, post-game that I, I found kind of interesting. He said, we haven't played in any tournaments or anything like that. To play against the number four team, to beat the number four team, is probably the highlight of everyone's career. Did you feel it was that big at that time? At that point, it absolutely was. It absolutely was. I mean, that was the highest-ranked team that we had beaten since, since we've been there. Illinois, we were up, we lost. Michigan State, then we lost by about 12. We could, could never beat Syracuse up at Syracuse. So it was always tough. Pitt, that's like their golden era of basketball those years when we were in school. So for us to get that team on our home court and win was amazing. I think that was the biggest winning for us, for our for our class, until the, uh, the Arizona win. It's great you mentioned the Arizona win. You make the tourney and you roll up into a stacked Arizona team. You fall behind by 17. You're senior and now a two-time captain. What did you tell the guys to get these get the game rolling again? First off, the day before we left, I, I told my five months. So there was a 0% chance to be playing. But Sheila, our, our trainer, man, she knew how much it meant. Because like, I cried. Because I knew, I, knew, I knew it was torn when it happened. And we went to the doctor and <laughs> he confirmed it. She spent hours upon hours that night, the next day, just trying to get me to at least be on the court. So like, I, I thank her for that because... I think I might only play like eight to 10 minutes, but her dedication to allowing me to now my senior year opportunity to play the tournament just to allow me to get on the floor was great. It was just amazing. Um, to get a basket was even better. And to know that I can't help my team the way I have all year and we're down 17 points, and it's, it's gut-wrenching. And I just remember at halftime, myself and Andre just telling the team, this won't be our last game. We will come back. We fought too hard. We've been here before. We will. Like, everybody in that locker room felt like we was going to win the game. And I just remember us as seniors telling the team that it, it was going to happen. So to see Kelly come out in that second half and play as well as he did, and Andre and John Allen, man, it was it, it was great. It was great. That that obviously is the best feeling I had in college. So Tommy and I were looking back at the box score, and I was just like, I couldn't put my finger on it. I was like, I don't remember Marcus not playing as many minutes in that game, especially when Donald Copeland said that part of the strategy was to go small. I'm like, well, obviously right. Marcus was a part of that. We went back and saw that you only logged 14 minutes that game. The injury that you just uncovered kind of makes more sense now as to kind of how it all went down. Yeah, we were in practice. Uh, something always happened with snow. In high school, I missed it. We The games we played on a Saturday got rescheduled because of snow. I break my foot the next time we play. We were supposed to leave for the NCAA tournament. We couldn't leave because of the snow. So we had to stay at day. We have practice. I get a steal by myself on the fast break. I go to jump. I missed the layup and I fall. I thought I got pushed. They told me nobody was around me. And I remember one day being in the training room and Sheila said, if you you, you know you tore your muscle as if there's like a hole, a divot. And when I looked down, I saw it, but nobody else knew. So Coach Orr like, Marcus, get back on defense. I'm like, I can't. Sheila like, Marcus, get up. I said, I can't. So practice is still going on. They think I'm embarrassed I missed. I missed. So I hop off the sideline and I'm like, no, Sheila, look. And she saw the hole and she touched it. And I, I fell out hollering. So I don't know if you ever tore a muscle before, but when somebody push 
into that indentation that that you might as well feel like you, you might as well be shot. That that was why I didn't I didn't play as much during the Arizona game and trying to run it back the next day uh, against Duke was even less minutes playing that high power team and I just wasn't able to to get on the court um, like I wanted to. The feeling to know that I was on a team that that persevered and finally um, overcame the odds and put ourselves in position to to get a school some success. I'm I'm forever grateful and proud of being um, a member of that team. So so that's a great way to kind of summarize your career at Seton Hall, though, is you being the vocal leader, the glue guy, the guy who basically persevered as well as that team. But, But here's a question that I have for you. You talked about being the man for all that time at Seton Hall Prep. You remember scoring 25 a game. I mean, you were an an offensive player back in your high school days, but while at Seton Hall, you really only averaged about six points a game. Is there a reason why some players' games just don't translate from high school to the college game from a scoring perspective? It's the system. It's the system. And then the work ethic. Like, I I, could have worked harder in the offseason when I was in college. Quite honestly, I I made it most of the majority of my life through 21, this off playing in the park, having practice, working out here and there, everything was just really God-given ability. Um, I didn't really hone in to my talent the way I should have. So while a huge part of it is the system, the other part is you got to work. You got to work. And as easy as things came in high school, I, I honestly didn't think college would be that, that much different. Because when we practiced, like I had success. Uh, Coach Garrett and I, I still talk to all, all my coaches from then. And Coach Garrett, I tell anybody, the Marcus had game. Like the things that used to get done in practice or how easy I made it look in practice, and things like that, just wasn't what Coach Ball wanted from me. Like I remember after graduating and now I'm playing in the the, the, uh, the pro leagues in New York and things like that and people say oh it's all basketball people don't play defense and all that. but oftentimes they do because it's for bragging rights and you got actual NBA players and overseas guys that play and it was I had a, a lot of big games playing in the Nike Pro City League but it was one game where Ron Artest didn't show up as a semifinal game I'm just now I'm mad that he don't show up for the semifinal and I don't want to play the game because here I am Queensbridge I'm playing for Queensbridge and they haven't won a playoff game in I don't know how many years now we in a dog fight to try to make the finals Ron Artest and I um, were on the same team and we was like Batman and Robin all year so there's one particular game he doesn't show up. They have to convince me to play in the game because this is how upset I was about him not showing up, about to go play against a loaded team. Long story short, I score 50 and we win. The next day, business as usual, I'm at Seton Hall working out. And this is what changed it for me with, with, with Coach Ford, like ultimately. Because Coach Ford did a lot of things. He took the team to church and he actually opened my eyes up more to, to Christianity and ultimately ended up being baptized and becoming a Christian. He helped me see things from a different perspective. So I started to learn that when he says certain things, I, I I believe he's saying more, so to speak. So after this particular game, I'm in the hall, I'm working out, I come upstairs, I go to the coach's office like I always do, and I'm about to leave. And when he comes in, he sees me because he wasn't in his office. He goes, don't come in here talking about I held you back because you scored 50 last night. And I just laughed and kept walking. <laughs> Oh, that's because good. because for me, I didn't have to say nothing to you. I didn't even mention the game. The game never came up. But the fact that he knew who I was playing against and who I was playing on, and that I had fifty, and he said, "Don't say I was holding you back." That gives show to show me that maybe somewhere in his mind, he probably he probably could have let me go a little bit more. Or at least that's how I'm taking it. <laughs>
Oh, totally. So after you're done with Seton Hall, you did make many stops on a pro uh, in the pro career, and it's almost like you went to dream vacation destinations. From the look at it, you played in the Dominican, you played in Japan, you played in Australia. These are places people like to go take vacations in. What's your favorite stop? Man, it's for different reasons. Culture-wise, fan appreciation would have to be Japan. Japan was amazing. I, I didn't know their love for basketball was what it was. I knew baseball, but I didn't know their love for basketball. Heck, I met one of my, my best friends in Japan. He was in the Navy and a ref in the league. He's actually going to be in my wedding next year because he, he moved back to Philly. Overall, Japan, I think the, the most comfortable place was Australia because everything was English. I felt like I was back at home. And from a fun perspective, it, it would be obviously Dominican Republic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you wrap up your playing career probably at the end of 08 and you come back to the States and you get back right back into coaching. And Tom and I made an interesting uh, observation is you kind of want to say went backwards, but you went from older to younger. You started out as an associate head coach at FDU and then you went back into the high school ranks and now you're kind of coaching the the AAU players. Walk us through the, the the transition in your coaching career. So what happened, actually, I got into coaching because I tore my, my patella tendon when I came home working out when I came home from Australia. Um, I was working out, and I went and played in a summer league game. And it's weird because before the game, I'm at IHOP, and I'm talking to my agent, and I had just – um, secured a deal for Israel, and they were going to fax the papers over, and all I had to do was play my game, sign the papers, and then I'd be off to Israel. But in that game, I told my patella tendon. Um, I didn't tell my team in Australia until, like, January because I didn't know the severity of it. I didn't know, like, the, the amount of time needed for that injury or anything. And I didn't tell Japan until, like, March because the only reason I left Japan to go to Australia is I didn't want to play for my team in Japan anymore. And if your team doesn't release you, they don't trade you, you can't just go play for another team. You got to be out of the country for a year and then come back. And that and that was my plan. So either Japan, Australia, or Israel was one of my next stops. So I tear my patella tendon now in rehab and and I, and I start coaching the players. And Nick Marinella, who's the head coach at Hudson Catholic, had just left Bloomfield Tech. And he was going to take the, the head job at Hudson Catholic at the time. And I was his assistant with the players. And he ends up leaving halfway through the season. So now I've never coached before. But now I'm, I'm the head coach for our players, 15 under team. And we had some success. I started liking it. And then, so that was my first break to being the head coach. So then I go up to five-star to be a coach and one of the coaches didn't show up and they need another coach for the NBA. And if you're a first year coach, you never get to coach the highest level uh, at five star. You got to work your way up, but they need another coach. Garth, remember me from high school and we always had a relationship. So he allowed me to be coach of an NBA team. And when you're coaching that five star, you got to watch all these games and then you go in, the, in a room, you get a number and it's like a lottery. You draft your team. And so it's my first time doing it. I ended up drafting my team. And long story short, we end up losing in the championship. But I was picked to, to be a coach in the All-Star game. And we won the All-Star game. My team lost the championship. And that's when the coaching bug really got me. That summer, I was, uh, so was that, 2008, 2009? So in 2010, I was asked, the following summer, I was asked to join the FCU's coaching staff with, with Greg Patron. What kind of challenges did you face adjusting from being a player to being a coach? None. For two reasons. One, because... 
I knew why I got into coaching. It was because I had gotten hurt. Most guys that get into coaching still can play. I knew I couldn't play at a high level. So I've never had no itch to go back to playing professional basketball. So that's the biggest challenge for guys that used to play, wanting to continue playing. But I knew I couldn't do it. So my only playing was with the guys on campus and keeping them right. The other part that, that guys have that were ranked pretty high and had some success, they find it hard to teach the game. But I've always been a student of the game, and, and I, I got to get this to, to Coach Farrell, man, his patience with teaching. Um, my first AAU coach is Joe Jordan, his, his patience with teaching. Like Those two guys were rubbing off on me. I didn't know it. And so when it came for me to, to teach, it, it was second nature because I've always been a student. So, Marcus, it's, it sounds like you have a passion for teaching. Right now you're kind of working with the players, you know, developing the grassroots <laughs> type younger athlete. Where do you see the next phase in your coaching career? Every year I try to get back to college coaching. Um, ever since I, um, we were let go at FDU. Heck, I've tried three times to, to get back to Seton Hall, um, but things, I guess, just didn't unfold the way it could have or I believe should have. But every year I try to get back into college coaching. And this is a, a, a network-type business. It's not about who you know. I mean, it's not about what you know and what you can provide. It's oftentimes about who you know or who owes who a favor. And I know that my story is going to continue and I'm going to end up back in college coaching. And someday I'll be a head coach. And my dying wish would be to coach at Seton Hall, to be a head coach at Seton Hall, and, and just have lots of success there. Right now, I, I teach history at Montclair Immaculate Conception High School. Um I am a assistant boys basketball coach there. I do coach the players, and I, and I started the elementary program with the players. So now we go down to first grade. You know, we do first through sixth grade, and myself and Martin Jarrell coordinate that. So my goal is just to be around basketball as much as I can. I enjoy teaching the game. Um, I enjoy seeing kids get better. Um, I, I just my my passion for for coaching and teaching it might even supersede my passion for playing and i i asked coach hill one day is that weird and he said no nah. he just said just shifts passion but what i think ultimately what it is i don't think my it was in the cost for me to be a, a pro athlete i think i was supposed to be a coach i think i was supposed to lead and, and teach and have patience and show and recruit and and, and x's and those like I, I sit home and draw plays i'm always doing something basketball related to, to sharpen my craft so one day i guess i guess in, in summation i'll be back coaching in college and when it's all said and done i'll be a head coach i'll be a collegiate head coach well marcus before we let our guests leave we make them walk the plank. We give you five rapid-fire questions. We're looking for five rapid-fire answers. No need to elaborate. <laughs> Just give us the first thing that pops into the top of your mind. You think I'll you're ready for this? Sure. I don't know, man. A lot of things go through this mind. <laughs> I don't know. My mind pretty abstract. You might, you might get lost. Oh, don't worry about it. We like that. Don't worry. Here we go. Are you are uh, you ready, Marcus? Question number one. Most points scored in any game at any level? Uh, 63 against Belgium. I went with a team from uh, from New York, and we played over in France. And I had 63 on Belgium. Question number two. Most hated rival? Hated? Oh, that's a strong word. I guess it had to be heard of it, but he and I are friends now, so I'm not sure if that counts. Most hated team rival? It would have to be picked because we, we, it was hard. Those were wars. Toughest road environment? West Virginia. Toughest 
opponent you've ever seen play? Can I give two answers or sure. is this the first? No, go for it. Go All for right. it. Uh, as a freshman, I thought the hardest person I ever had to guard was Preston Shumpert. And I, I did a good job on it, but chasing him like Reggie Miller was something at 18 I wasn't ready for. Yeah, from Syracuse, and, right? Yeah. And then uh, the other the Syracuse guy was Mello because uh, we played him twice. He got rolling in the first half, and then Coach Orr put me on him, told him down the second half. And then I had the responsibility the whole game, and it was tough. It was tough. It was one of the toughest players I had to guard. But I think if you look at the box score, his second half, the first time, and the whole next year, I think I, I did a pretty good job on Best SHU player you've ever seen play? Eddie Griffin. All right, bonus question. Out of the 25 guys ranked ahead of you nationally in the 2000 recruiting class, who do you think turned out to be the best? Be the best. Whew, that's a loaded question because I don't remember all the guys. But a, a hell of a lot of them damn sure made the NBA. Do you, um, you, want, do you want me to give you a list to pick from? Yeah, go go through the list because Deshaun made it. Joe yep. Wallace made it. Yep. Are, all the guys made it. Zach Darius, Darius it. Miles, Zach Randolph, Darius. Randolph Chris Duhon. Uh, like they, <laughs> pick one. You pick one. <laughs> <laughs> they, those, those are long-time pros. Chris Coleman in college. I haven't spoke to Zebo in a while, but – that, that class, um, when people talk about uh, high school draft classes and things like that, or high school class, it doesn't get mentioned, but we had, we had a lot of pros in that class. Congratulations, Marcus. You've walked the plank. Oh, man, thanks a lot, man. Hey, I appreciate let me, you guys for having me. Hold on. Before we cut off, you know, you were the second person to say West Virginia. I want to say Shaw said it. What made West Virginia so tough? When I was a freshman, I didn't know they actually shoot the gun in the, in the arena. So that 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 was tough, but it's, it was so intimate. It was, it was and, the, and their fans go ape shit. <laughs> but it was West Virginia. I thought Notre Dame was tough. I thought when we played Clemson my freshman year, I thought that was a tough um, environment. But overall, definitely West Virginia because their, their fans they really get into it. They're really on top of you. Um, people think Rutgers fans are on top of you, but nah. Like West Virginia, you just felt like everything was right there, and you heard everything. That, that, that's a tough place to play. I had one follow-up question also. We, we were messing around with the top 25 and all the guys that went pro from that nationally recruited class in 2000. But Tom and I were going down the list, and outside of a few guys from 2027 20, to, let's say, 100, I think there was Luke Ridenauer, Karan Butler, but there weren't too many other guys that even had successful college careers uh, to our recollection. I mean, what would you say to the fan base out there that's kind of watching Seton Hall go through the recruiting process and getting guys that are three-star or fringe four-star and they're upset that they're not a top 100 recruit what would you say to those fans i understand because when you've had success you know what it tastes like you you, you want more and you want to try to get a four and a five-star guy but every corporation every team that has ever won is made up of you know, workers, guys that aren't as heralded as the other guys. And you need some fours and some three-star guys to to, to, to balance the, the team out. So if you're getting good fours and you're getting good threes, that's not a knock. That's a good thing. But I also understand that, you know, you want a five-star, you want a, a four-plus to to kind of keep the ball rolling. So, to, like, our fans aren't wrong for wanting it, but we also got to understand that this isn't the, the same Big East. You know, this, this isn't the best league in the country anymore. Other leagues are getting better. So at a time where it was the best league, it was easier to convince somebody to come play in the best league. Like, it's easy to convince somebody to go play in the ACC, the SEC, 
hell, the, the Big Ten right now is is, is is doing phenomenal things. But from a from a fan's perspective, and your team is coming off the NCAA tournament as, as often as we have now, um, they're not wrong for wanting us to get five stars or, or the top guys in our area between New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia. They they deserve that. I mean, they they come out, they cheer, they they root for the team, and and Coach Willett and his staff, I'm sure, are doing the best they can. Um, I know they're working hard. You know, sometimes it just doesn't fall. You just get tired of being the school that it doesn't fall to. We had a time where we were, where we got the top guys in Jersey. We just got to get back to that point. And and sometimes you, you got to go back to, to to the blueprint on how it happened. You know, we can't keep trying to recreate the will and. Once we do that, I think we'll be able to have success. We got to find another Marcus Toniel to be the Pied Piper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hell, I, I, try, I tried to get there. I tried to get there to duplicate it. But um, these guys that he got there, Grant Billmeyer, um, Tony Scan, and, and uh, my man 40, Dwayne Woodward, I think those guys are are, are capable of, of getting the job done. I mean, when, when Coach Willard has the opportunity to put a staff together, you, you try to cover all bases. And you put guys in place that that can go out and get these four and five star guys. And to the best of his um his knowledge and those guys' ability, um, I believe they can. Well, Marcus, we want to thank you for spending some time with us. We really appreciate you, and we wish you nothing but success going forward. Hey, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me. If there's anything that I can ever do, uh, just let me know. And as always, it's go Pirates. There uh, we thank go, you. Marcus, thank you, Marcus. Antonio. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Donald Copeland, Desi Rodriguez, Angel Delgado, and Jerry Walker. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 